What I've done this morning is take a sermon that I preached maybe eight years ago, maybe now, seven years ago, something like that. So there were two different sermons. If you remember when Obama was president, there was a time when he said, since the Bible says, since Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that we should then legalize same-sex marriage. So because of that, I did one sermon on that, and then maybe a year later, I had done some other research and read some some books by men that said that they were Christians, but that they were gay, they were homosexual, and said that you could be homosexual and be a Christian. So then I did a sermon on that about seven years ago. So I say that to say I'm not addressing anything specifically currently, except I don't think culture has gotten better. (laughs) It's gotten worse. I have not read any recent books on this subject matter uh, since that time, except... I do continue to read a book by Robert Gagon, who does a incredible, in-depth, exegetical study of this whole issue, but he's not conservative in his theology, but his exegesis is really good. You can also look at James White. He also has a book, um, Same-Sex Controversy, I believe it's called. There's another believer, Uh, his name, I know him, Uh, Christopher, Lisa, our friend in South Africa that went to Grace Church, Mark Christopher, he's a graduate from Master's Seminary, went to Grace Community Church, he lives in South Africa, forgot the name of that book, but you can just look it up on Amazon, okay, Mark Christopher. So those are at least three really good books. MacArthur might have one on it. I'm not sure. So I thought today, this Sunday, we'd take some time and look at this issue. One way to address almost anything in life is through theology. It was John Frame that said that theology is the basically the application of Scripture is one way to look at theology. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of identity, and the doctrine of discipleship. So if you have an, an understanding, a basic understanding of those truths that the Bible teaches, you take that understanding and you wear it as a type of lens to look at different issues. This issue that we're going to look at is, I say it in quotes, gay Christianity. Even today, there have been some Christian leaders that have come to a different understanding of homosexuality, and so they left the faith. 
So whether it was eight years ago or today, this issue, of course, is important because it goes back to the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, here's the issue in a nutshell. Since same-sex attraction, that is, homosexuality, are these desires for that kind of relationship, is an orientation from birth. So, same-sex monogamous relationships are therefore biblically accepted. And those Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction can identify themselves as gay Christians. This is what Matthew Vines and Matt Moore say. This is not what, what I'm saying. This is what Matthew Vines and Matt Moore say. And his book and their books have influenced many young professing believers to actually leave the faith and to pursue this type of lifestyle. Even, they would say, Matthew Vines has said, if there is a, quote, gay Christian, and you tell that person, you need to repent and to leave that thinking and that that kind of lifestyle, you need to flee from it, that that could cause that person to commit suicide. And as a Christian, then you'd be responsible for that. Some of these writers and proponents of this idea that a Christian can have a gay orientation and be gay would say even that Christians need to repent of calling professing gay Christians back to Christ. Christians should not do that. So that basically is what we're going to deal with. But we would say that the Bible says, right, in Proverbs, that open rebuke is better than hidden love, and we're to speak the truth in love. And so we not only have a right, but a responsibility to help everyone to find and follow Jesus. But basically what we're going to do then is to take these different doctrines that I mentioned, we're going to look at each one, look at the assertion that's made about Christianity and homosexuality, same-sex orientation, and then apply that doctrine. So first would be understand and be able to communicate the doctrine of the word. We want to help these people, not because we are closer to God and our own righteousness, but because we are saved and we want to see them saved and walking with with the Lord. So here's an assertion that is made, and I've mentioned it briefly. Some who affirm same-sex orientation assert that Paul in Romans 1, 24-27 would not have known about same-sex orientation because it's more of a recent biological genetic discovery. That Paul in Romans 1, 24-27 is basically just talking about abusive homosexuality because during the time of, of Rome... Right? There were tons and tons. There were more slaves than there were, than there were citizens. And so sometimes there would be slaves that would be abused in a homosexual way. And that's what Paul is talking about. Romans 1, 24 to 27. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so Matthew Vines and others that would say they're Christians and yet homosexual would say, see, Paul here doesn't have the scientific knowledge that we have today to understand that people can have a genetic disposition to be gay. You know, the Bible was written, at least at the New Testament, over 2,000 years ago. Paul would have been out of touch with today's scientific mindset. How do we answer this? How how, how do we deal with this assertion? Well, inspiration. We, We need to understand the doctrine of inspiration. 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. All of you are very familiar with this passage. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. We're teaching, correction, uh, correction, rebuking, training, and righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The basic doctrine of inspiration is that what God wanted written was written exactly how he wanted it to be written. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. Uh, let me insert this. If you have any questions, ask those questions during... This time, not at the end, because there won't be time probably at the end. So, so ask him as I'm talking. Just, hey, hey, Tom. And then we can answer that question. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 is basically teaching what can be known as a dynamic dictation. When God inspired his word, it wasn't dictation where Every single biblical writer writes in the same exact way, right? You can look at Luke, and Luke writes differently than Isaiah, right? They're dramatically different. And that's because the Lord would use that person's personality and style, that person's research and so forth. But when you look at Second Peter chapter 1, verses through 21, the Holy Spirit would work in that person in such a way that what God wanted to be written was exactly written of how God wanted to be written. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The very words of Scripture were produced by the Spirit of God through divine and dynamic dictation, being perfectly inscripturated. What God wanted written was exactly written down. So when we look back then at Romans, this is God's mind on the issue of homosexuality. And God is the Alpha and Omega. God knows all things, right? Even by, just by his very nature. Even most unbelievers would say, of course God knows all things. He's, he's God. So we can't look at Romans 1 or any part of the Bible and say that somehow this is just Paul's idea. 
This is not just Paul's idea in Romans 1. It's God's thoughts on this matter. So it's not Paul's Greco-Roman or even Judaistic legalistic tendencies. It's the very mind of God. And so professing Christians that use such uh, a claim, they may have forgotten or may have a low view of God's word and we need to help them to understand that this is the very mind of God. It's not the mind of Paul. It wasn't that Paul was inspired. Paul wasn't inspired. Second Peter 1, 20-21, the Holy Spirit would seize an apostle or a prophet or a close associate of an apostle and work in them dynamically in such a way that they would write the inspired word of God. So that's first. But second, even if you look at this passage, it uses the word nature. You can see that in verse 26. The natural function for that which is unnatural. And even 27, natural. And it's the word phuseis. And it deals basically with the the very core, that that inner person and what they really are in their very essence. And so actually Romans 1, 26-27 is talking about the person's orientation, their mindset, their identity, who they really are, right? It's talking about that they're made in the image of God. It's getting to the very fundamental and basic levels of humanity. So actually, it is scientifically accurate, but it's even going deeper than these claims today would go. It's going back to the very foundational level of the very beginning of Genesis 1. Where God made man in his image and made them male and female, not male male or female female, but male and female. And the man and the woman cleave together. But mainly, this is what I'm referring to here is the doctrine of inspiration, because there are many in the universal Christian world that would say, I'm thinking of Methodist churches, some other mainline churches, maybe even some others, maybe some liberal Baptist churches, I might say that Paul is just writing out of his own prejudice. No. The doctrine of inspiration is that this, what God wanted written was exactly written as he wanted it to be written. And this is the mind of God on the issue. And it's talking not about, here Romans 1, not about a certain element or inner component of homosexuality, but it's talking about the very nature of who people are. It's clearer from the text. There's another doctrine that we can use to communicate with people, and that's the doctrine of sin. And their assertion is this. Some people are born with an orientation, you know, a, a, a disposition or a bent in their, in their heart to live a certain way. And for some people, the bent of their heart, how they were created, is to be gay. How can you have the audacity to change how somebody was created? 
is the thought, is the assertion. It wasn't their choice. It's inborn. Stop being a bigot. If you were to go to somebody and say, don't be gay, you, it's like telling somebody, don't be left-handed. Stop being a bigot. It's like coming to me and saying, stop being white. Instead, you should be black or yellow or red. That's the assertion that's that's made. So how do we deal with this? Because that's actually in Matthew Vines and Matt Moore's and, and other books are like being left-handed is or you know, a certain color of skin. It's a genetic trait. So it's homosexuality. So how do we deal with this? Well, the doctrine of original sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says what? Can somebody read that? Jeremiah 17.9. And then somebody else read Psalm 51.5. Yes. I hope. Thank you. And when the Hebrew or the Greek talks about heart, it's not the emotions, it's the affections, the will, and the mind, the, the very center of our humanity. Psalm 51.5. Somebody please read that, Psalm 51.5. So that statement is saying as soon as the egg and the sperm came together that the the bent and the disposition of the heart was to be evil, was to be wicked. It, it wasn't hallelujah, hallelujah, glory, glory to God. But it was, I don't believe, really, give it to me now. I want everything right now. That is that our, when we're even conceived, that there's not a bent to trust Jesus, but to resist Christ and to resist the Spirit of God. That is that everybody that's been born has the potentiality to do murder, to be a thief, to kidnap, to fight, to abuse people, to commit all kinds of sexual sin. Everybody has that potential. Even though we've been made in the image of God, that image has, though not destroyed, it has been damaged in the fall. And so when we're conceived, we're conceived and we are totally depraved. It doesn't mean we act as bad as we are, but we have the potentiality, everybody does, to be very, very, very bad. And often we act out our sinful desires and thoughts. Original sin is this idea is, you know, basically from Adam. Well, you want to say biologically, we would say more representationally that we are not a race that embraces God, embraces Christ and his law, but like Psalm 2, we take God's law and you know, those things that bind us and we throw it down and, and resist it. I can remember years ago, Oh, gosh. Over 35 years ago now, 
I was in Santa Monica <laughs> witnessing. And there's a bunch of uh, street people, and several of them were gay. And one of them said to me, he said, but I, I was born gay. I don't need to repent. I was born gay. And well, my response to that was, you were born a sinner, and through the circumstances of life, you pursued that as a refuge. And it's not a suitable or sufficient refuge. Nothing is. Being, being heterosexual is not a sufficient refuge for you either. But Jesus Christ is. Rest in him. But the question then is, why do some professing Christians struggle and others do not? I used to give a friend of mine a ride in college to Valencia Community College, and he said he knew Christ, and he was definitely gay. And we had many, many, many conversations. And he struggled with it immensely. Well, should I not have said anything to him? Said I said, hey man, it's cool. God loves you, and you're made in the image of God. Is that how we talk to them? Or do we say, you are made in the image of God, but by this desire that you're pursuing, you are forsaking that image of God in you. I think that second way would be the, the better way. But we can ask these questions. Is... Some would say that a professing Christian, they can be gay because that's their orientation. Can a Christian then be a murderer? Can I say my orientation is to be a mass, what do you call it, a person, a psychopath? I am a Christian murderer. I've killed 25 people. But it, that's okay because that's my orientation. All right? Why do we just single out homosexuality? I'm a thief. But that's my orientation. I, I, was, I was a born as a thief. And so it's okay. Don't tell me to repent of being a thief. Maybe, God forbid, a child abuser. But that's my orientation. I was born that way. So it's okay? Or is it only because... Right now in the U.S. and other parts of the world, at least in the West, the political parties, or Hollywood, have so much control and influence that, yes, it's okay for homosexuality, but not for those other areas. What about kidnapping? Can you be a kidnapping Christian? That's my orientation. We would say that's ridiculous, right? That's ludicrous. We're born, and we're born sinners, and we need to be redeemed and reconciled to God through Christ, and everybody is a sinner. The issue is not biological or genetics, but enslavement to sin. Now, at this point, I would recommend a book. I recommended it years ago. I don't know if anybody read it. I don't know if even anybody read one chapter in it. It's really a good book, and it's free. A free book. It's by Neil Whitehead. My genes made me do it. Not J-E-A-N-S. 
G-E-N-E-S. So I, I double and triple dog dare you. You can just find it through Google, and it's a free book offer, and it's an online book. I triple dog dare you to read the first chapter. I reread it again. Now I've read it maybe seven times. It's all these different issues of DNA, and and there's paradigms, and and all this. And he's a physicist, and he uh, radiation maybe physicist, and he's taught in Japan and at the UN and with Australia. It's a I think a very helpful book. And what he would say is in terms of genetics is at, at the extreme most, you could say maybe 10% in terms of a person's behavior, including homosexuality. At the most, he would say, 10% is produced by genetics, usually like two to three. Everything, everything else is environment. And by environment, he doesn't mean too much carbon. But he means, um, for example, when I played sports during P.E., at Conway Elementary, when was I picked? Was I picked first or last? When I was at Conway Elementary School, was I picked first or last? I was always picked what? Last. Do you know why? Because I was short. I think because of my father and I had three older brothers, my response to that was not to isolate myself or become timid, because of my father and my three older brothers, my response to that was what? Oh yeah, really? I'm going to whoop you now. You're going to see, right? My response to that was more aggressive. Some people may choose to go, and, and that led to me being in what? Fights. I got in a lot of fights when I was in elementary and junior high school. But some people... I'm just giving you one example of remarried examples. May tend to go the other way and become more um, uh, softer. Maybe not want to hang out with the guys and, and that way and so forth. And so these are examples that Neil Whitehead gives in terms of genetics. Maybe at the most ten percent, but often there are choices that people make. Not just one choice, but many, many, many different choices that eventually leads to a bad outcome. You know, today, somebody, kids could look at something on their cell phone that they shouldn't look at. And then after time, you know, 10 years of exposure to that, what's that going to do to the mind and the heart? It's going to create a lot of problems. Or you could go to a liberal university that teaches all kinds of crazy doctrines and things about homosexuality or about history, about science, and because it's an authoritative figure, you know, there are times when I've had some homosexual temptations, and this person is saying that's because I have this orientation, then I must be gay. And then that's it. They're gone. And so that's what Neil Whitehead is saying. He's saying that genetically, at the most 10%, and he gives all kinds of illustrations and scientific reasons for all this. Again, I would recommend that you read it. 
Biblically, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, says that we are what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. And that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience. And that we all too lived in the desires of our flesh and mind. That is, that we were enslaved to society, Satan, and our own sin. And some people may choose to be gay. Some people may choose to be a, seek to be a businessman and a millionaire. Some people may seek to be a, an athlete, a, a scientist, a doctor, a, a, a fisherman, seeking out all these other refugees, sorry, uh, places of safety instead of God and, and Jesus Christ. Because we're sinners. So it is primarily an issue of sin. Otherwise, we couldn't tell people repent. And Scripture talks about this so many different places. First Corinthians 6, you can look at verses 9 and 10, and it gives this list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers who inherit the kingdom of God. So all these things are sinful. Homosexuality in a more graphic, demonstrated way, often. Any questions yet? No? Yes, go ahead. I believe he does. I, I believe he does. I just reread chapter one. I didn't reread the whole book, but I believe he does in the other chapters that he looks at other areas as well. Yeah, M- my dad would get very, very, very angry. I- I've shared with some of you how angry he would get. So the question is, with my temper, did I get that through his genes, or by learning from the environment? And Neil, yeah, Neil Whitehead would say maybe at the most 10% of genes, but 90% just because he's rubbing off on you. <laughs> and then you make choices to reject that or not be like that. Like my brother and I, we decided that we would not have our dad's anger. And we made a covenant not to be like our dad in that way. I have not been perfect in that. <laughs> Seek to grow in that area. Um, I was going to. So maybe if it's helpful, what I try to share, what I have shared with um, true Christians and some professing Christians that struggle, and just some homosexuals on the street, when they bring up homosexuality and how can you say that we're going to hell, you know, so forth then normally I, I try to say something like being heterosexual is not the ticket to heaven. Okay, So we're not saying if you determine to be heterosexual, you're going to heaven. That, that the gospel is be heterosexual. That's not the gospel. 
And even I'd go so far to say that there'd be more heterosexuals in hell than homosexuals. Right? Yeah. Pretty sure. However, practicing homosexuality will send you to hell. But so will what? Adultery. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're being a thief. So we're being a drunkard. The answer is repent and trust in Jesus Christ. He is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And you don't get to heaven unless you repent and trust Jesus. We all need to repent. All of us. <laughs> and at times, that can help the homosexual to understand. I'm not saying you, the homosexual, are deserving of hell, while everybody that's a non Homosexual is not. <laughs> no. We're all going to hell unless we repent of our sins and trust Jesus. And sometimes that can help them. Because we're all sinners. Now third, a third doctrine. Again, these are just different ways to help a friend. Or maybe you're passing out tracts or witnessing and somebody will bring up this issue. It's not that you necessarily want to share all of these theological things with them, but pick one that's most appropriate for that situation, for that question. With my friend that I went to college with, we dialogued for you know weeks and weeks and weeks. It was about a year and a half. And to my knowledge, he never repented and became a believer, but I think he grew in his understanding of what the Bible said about his issue. Number three is be able to communicate the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. Again, I'm not saying that you use that term, that you say, you need to be regenerated. <laughs> you might be like, what? Refrigerated? What are you talking about? I'm not saying you, you say that, but this is the assertion that has been and is made. I can't change. Don't ask me to. When I was in India one time, this church asked me to do their youth camp, and I did. And then I found out that the leaders of that church approved of homosexuality. And then the men got up, and they all dressed up as women. And they had asked me to speak. <laughs> so then, you know, God gave grace, and I shared, shared the truth, and it was a good time. But some of the, the feedback from them was, this is the way I am. I can't change. How can you ask me to change? It's impossible for me to change. I've tried. You know, and then there can be a feeling of, truly, of helplessness and hopelessness. For some that are especially professing to be Christians, and then maybe are still being homosexual and they profess Christ, and they can get to a state of hopelessness and helplessness. I can't change. I've tried. I can't stop. I mean, even as a true believer, are there sins that you struggle with that you just get so like, oh my word, Lord, am I even saved? Think if you're not not saved, not truly, and that's a sin of this nature. It can be. You can see where it might push somebody to the place where they want to take their own life because of the massive amount of guilt they could have. However, what we communicate is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. 
And God specializes in that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You're very familiar with this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's the idea, the biblical truth of regeneration. I summarized Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, who are dead in our sin. But then Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God being great in his love and rich in his mercy caused us to be alive. By grace you're saved through faith. He's risen us up with him and seated us in the heavenlies with him. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 is talking about regeneration where God gives that person a new dynamic by the Spirit of God to believe Christ and to follow the Bible. Not not perfectly, we'd be in heaven, but in a totally new way, a cleansed and, in a sense, charged up with the power of God. Paul says it even in 2 Timothy 1.7, but we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of what? Power and love, to love the right way, and of a sound, disciplined mind. To be a Christian, every person is regenerated, born again, made new from above, cleansed and charged with the Spirit of God. With man, certainly it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is even what we see in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says... In verse 11, such was some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. He's saying you were truly, truly saved. Set apart, sanctified, set apart unto God, positionally and even in a practical sense, ready for this progressive sanctification in Christ by the Spirit of God. There's... You can read her book, it's pretty good. Uh, Rosanna Butterfield, that was a liberal teacher, and she was a lesbian, and then she ended up coming to Christ. And she has written, I think, two books now, and speaks across the, the U.S. and different churches. There's many who were of that behavior and mindset, and God saved them in a dramatic way. And she's, I I believe, married to a man and and has kids. (laughs) And so we can give hope and say that the Bible says that it's not impossible because God, as he created the whole universe, he can powerfully create in you and give you new desires and cleanse you and make and even give you a, a, a new start and his power is always there to help you. And then if you have something in your own life, if you have a, a sinful habit, an area of your life that dominated you, and you can share that with them, then that can even help them. You know, I used to fight, I, I used to curse all the time, uh, smoke marijuana, do speed, vandalize and steal when I was 10, 10 to 13 years old. And God saved me and changed me. He regenerated me. I was born again. And though with man it's impossible, with God it is possible. And so we we give them hope. God specializes in 
making all things new in your life. It doesn't mean there will never be a, a struggle. We, we need to communicate that. There will be a struggle until the day that we die. But as we pursue Christ and seek to trust him and to do what he says by his grace, then we'll see, okay, this one sinful area for a a person that was gay, after some time, that desire could go away, and then it's something else, you know, anger or some some other lust. What, what you know, it's always, okay, I was lusting for this. I've mortified that. Now, what else am I lusting for? You know, maybe it's some fame, right? And then you conquer that. Maybe it's, you know, for, I want chocolate cake four times a month. Maybe that's my, my overwhelming desire. You know, there's always something to mortify. So we want to communicate that as well. Primarily, God can change you. He has the power. Nothing is too difficult for God. So that's not the issue. God can save you, and he can radically transform your life. And then number four is the doctrine of identity. The doctrine of identity. And I've heard this, and I've talked to people that have this type of uh, I would say excuse I'm tempted with homosexual thoughts and attractions they keep happening therefore I must be gay it's inborn I'm not straight and I never will be it's my identity and that's huge today right you know he him what they, <laughs> I get lost in all the different uh, pronoun things but there are people today that will say, because of have, I have these temptations, therefore, that's at my heart level, therefore, I must be this way. Well, that's a lie. Temptation does not equal identity. And we can share that with people. Your temptation does not equal identity. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We've all been tempted in very similar ways, and and very, though they can be a little bit different, and very similar sins. That doesn't mean that that's my my identity. You know, I I, I could be tempted to, you know, go through a store, and whether it's a chocolate cake, maybe whatever it is, a brand new stereo TV system, all that looks good. Maybe there's like just a, an instant thought, you know, I can just take that, nobody's looking. Oh my God, that's bad. No, no way, I'm not doing that. What does that mean, that I'm a thief? You know, we're all tempted in many ways, but temptation, that doesn't mean who we are. Even for the unbeliever. The fundamental to the unbeliever is that they are what? What is their fundamental identity? A sinner? And even even before that, it's created in the image of God. A sinner, fallen, but they're created in the image of God. Their identity is a an unredeemed, fallen sinner that bears the image of God. Their identity is not, first and foremost, their sin. They've rejected God. Certainly, that's there. But the reason why sin is sin, is because they are rejecting God. They, they are rejecting what God has made them to be and to do. 
For a believer, not only are we made in the image of God, regeneration, we have been and are being remade into the image of Christ. That's why you have in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You're, you're something radically and totally different. Those things you used to be, but you're, you're not now. You're altogether a, a different type of person. This is why you have Romans 6.11 where Paul says, Now consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is For the Christian, we always are, throughout Scripture, to be reminding ourselves of who we really are and of who God really wants us to be. And that my identity now as a believer is I'm a child of God. I'm part of the kingdom of God, and, and I'm cleansed. Even Scripture says I'm a saint. Most likely, Mother Teresa wasn't a saint. So t- Saint Teresa wasn't a saint. But I am, and so are you if you've trusted Jesus. That's our identity. And so what we can share with the professing Christian is, look, if you profess Christ and you say you do, then your identity is a child of God. Your identity is a saint. Your identity is that you're justified, you're sanctified. You're a special person of God, so you have the right, the responsibility, and the power to say no, not just to homosexuality, but to to all sin. As a believer, that's not your identity. Your identity is that you're in Christ. That's why you have, right? Uh, Romans and Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's your identity. You're destined for, for glory. Remember that song? De Garmaron Key and... Oh, gosh. Was it destined for glory? Is that it? Yeah, maybe that's it. Destined to win. You remember? Yes. That's our identity. Destined to win. Glory in heaven with Christ forever and forever. Again, the, this, the idea is that there is a professing believer, somebody that says they're a Christian, and that their identity now is this temptation. We're saying the Bible doesn't say that. That's not what the Bible says. Your identity is that you're in Christ, is that you have a new life, new rights, but also new responsibilities and a new power. And then finally, a last one here that we can talk about is the doctrine of discipleship. And I have also heard this before. The assertion is, why should I refuse my innermost desire? Why would you, the church, tell me to not be who I am? I I should be who I am, right? You're telling me I can't be who I am? That's legalistic. That's oppressive saying I shouldn't be who I who I really am, that I should squash my most deepest, dearest desires. I should squash those? How dare you tell me to do that? I thought this was America. It's in my orientation. It's who I am. How do we respond to that? Well, Sam, 
with the word discipleship. If you want to follow Christ, what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 16. The core of discipleship is not that you seek to fulfill your desires. It's what? Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up the cross and follow me. If you don't want to deny yourself, take up the cross, which means be willing to die to yourself and your own will and goals and ambitions, then don't follow Christ and don't say you're a Christian. You're not saved because you're so good at denying yourself. You're saved by Christ, faith alone and Christ alone. But there is a, a cost to that, and that means Christ is first, and your your desires are not first. But Christ and his word and God and God's word is first. Part of being a Christian is that you learn to say the word no first to who? Yourself. <laughs> so if there's a professing Christian and they say this, they've been deceived, they have a sin, whatever that sin may be, in this case homosexuality, and then they're being told by somebody, look, you have this inner desire and for you to be you, if somebody squashes that, then you're not going to be able to be you, and then you're not going to be able to have self-fulfillment, and then you're going to be unhappy all the days of your life. When the Bible says the opposite, you find fulfillment and happiness and joy in saying no to yes and yes to Jesus. This is the doctrine of discipleship. Now, as we end, I would say it this way, and maybe this will help. And I would recommend the book by Edward, or I can say Ed, Ed Welch. Blame it on the brain. And he'll take things like dementia and homosexuality and look at it as outer man and inner man issues. Sometimes it can be both. Like ADHD could be a biological issue that's going on. It could be bad parenting. It could be the kid is staying up too late. <laughs> it could be the kid has a bad diet. You know, So you have to analyze it through outer man inner man. Or you can look at it this way. Homosexuality is a thing to be repented of. Dementia is not. There may be a way that a Christian that has dementia acts that they, if possible, need to repent and pursue forgiveness on. But having dementia itself is not a sin. But practicing homosexuality, any kind of homosexual act, is. So when we look at scripture, there is no such thing as a practicing gay Christian. Every Christian's identity is rooted and wrapped around Christ. I would end by saying this. Sexuality is not God nor Savior. Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. And it's in him that we find forgiveness and purpose and meaning. Any questions?
Ed Welch's book is very good. He deals, I think, with alcoholism, homosexuality, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, some other issues. Neil Whitehead's book is free. I suggest reading the first chapter. James White's book is good, same-sex controversy. It's a little bit old, but very good. Robert Gangon, if you want to get into the exegetical issues, it's really good. I should say that sometimes how he writes may not be the most um, pleasant. Or that's the wrong word. May not be the most um, polite. But it's a good book. Okay. Any questions? Please. That's a good question. If they profess Christ, then I would challenge them, you know, and sit down and talk with them. And then if they still want to keep coming as believers, then I think I would draw a line. Yeah. If they're unbelievers and they say we're not unbelievers, I'm sorry, if they say we're unbelievers, I would keep my eye on them and, you know, be careful. I don't want them to influence anybody. Like if there was a Muslim or if there was Mormons that were coming in, you know, I'd want to be careful. But if they're unbelievers, I would treat them a little bit differently. But if they profess Christ, then I think, you know, Matthew 18 and other passages, then we need to call them to repentance. As professing Christians, we need to challenge that very strongly, I think. Christ died for for sinners and Christ doesn't die for our sin in the sense where he didn't die from his sexuality. He died in the place of all those who would trust him. So if there's a homosexual and they profess Christ, can they be forgiven? Yes, certainly they can be forgiven. But can you continue to practice being an adulterer or being a thief, or being a drunkard, then we would say, you know, then you're not not a believer. You're not truly saved, because that's not true repentance. It doesn't mean that there would never ever be a, a struggle, that there would never be a mishap, that that act may never ever occur again. It might, but that kind of lifestyle, that kind of pattern is going to be, be broken. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You know, David committed what in Psalm 51? Mass murder, because it wasn't just, uh, was it Uriah? Uriah and Uriah's comrades and adultery. Was he forgiven? Yes, he was. So the issue is not, can that sin be forgiven? It can be. But forgiveness is not just, forgiveness is manifested by a changed life, by the Spirit of God working in us. Is that helpful? Any other questions? Get one of those books I mentioned, and it's good in this day and age just to inform yourself. If you want to be informed, then maybe James White would be one of the best to read.
Okay, then I'm going to pray. Lord, we confess we're sinners, Lord, and our own righteousness. We cannot stand before you ourselves. We also, Lord, would be condemned. We need to be justified and sanctified. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. And we glory in you and pray that we would take these truths and that we would share them with others humbly and wisely, but firmly and clearly, and do it with love, Lord. We thank you that we are redeemed in you, Lord. We praise you. Amen.